Brother Jeremy Smith's going to preach a couple of weeks because uh, he's going to cover the book of Daniel in two weeks. Uh, no, he can take as long as he wants to, as long as he lets me preach once in a while. But um, appreciate Brother Jeremy. He's got an earned doctor's degree, so he ought to be able to handle the book of, of Daniel. And uh, that's because I tutored him, is the reason he got the doctor's degree. But um, I appreciate Brother Jeremy's faithfulness, and I pray that God will use this uh, series on Daniel, not only here, but maybe somebody listening uh, in another church or something will realize what a good preacher he is and, and call him as, as a pastor. And so you don't know how God can use these recordings. Amen? So let's uh, pray to that end. But Brother Jeremy, you come and take your time, and we want to get out by 8.15 uh, to uh, go to the funeral home for you that live in Resaca or Calhoun or south of here. That'd be a blessing. Matter of fact, y'all can leave right at the beginning of the invitation. I've never said that in my life to go to the funeral home, okay? Uh, the rest of you, you stay here to the end, praise God, because the invitation is time to pray. But if you'd like to go minister to Brother Allen and his family, uh, feel free to leave uh, as soon as we start the invitation. Be fine and go down there and comfort them. So, Brother, you come, and, and we're looking forward to the study. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. I do appreciate it, um, the opportunity to be here. And we're going to start in Daniel chapter number 2. Uh, we started, we've already been in Daniel chapter 1 a few weeks back, um, one Sunday uh, back earlier this month. I guess it's still this month that we did that. But we're going to be going through the book of Daniel. My plan is to go through one chapter a week. One chapter a week. So if we start with Daniel chapter 2, hopefully in 11 weeks we will be done. And that will be a tall order, but I think we can, we can do it. Um, I really enjoyed Brother Andrew's message last Wednesday. He did an excellent job. And I told my wife, I said, I want to take his example. He said, one verse, one point. And I said, well, I thought I would do that for Daniel chapter 2, but my wife says, no, you can't because there's 49 verses in Daniel chapter 2. So that is not going to happen. While you're turning to Daniel chapter 2, uh, let me just tell you, give you some information on the book of Daniel. We're going to be studying a dream that Daniel interprets in chapter number 2. And I find it very interesting. We don't have time to dwell on this, but if you want to do some study on your own, look into the comparison between Joseph in the book of Genesis and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel. Both of them in their late teens were taken captive. They were both from a noble family. After all, Joseph was the great-grandchild of Abraham. And from his family would come all the kings of Israel, including Jesus the Messiah. He's from a noble family who's carried into captivity to another land. He undergoes severe trials and testing of his faith, but he passes the test and by the interpretation of dreams is promoted to the second in the land. At the end of Joseph's life, he also predicts, because of the promises of God, that the people, his family, the children of Israel, would one day return to the land that God had promised them. And that is found in the book of Genesis chapter 50 when he asked them to remember to take his bones back to the promised land when they go back. Now look at Daniel. Daniel in his late teens came from a noble family who was carried into captivity. When he arrives in Babylon, he suffers severe trials of his faith. But through the interpretation of a dream, is promoted to the second in the land of, of his captivity. And then, near the end of his life, 
He also predicts through the reading of God's Word and recognizing the promises of God that His people will return back to the land that God has promised them. Very interesting comparison between the two. Y'all can look at that when y'all get back to your house in your personal Bible study. The title of the message today is Nebuchadnezzar's Nightmare. Nebuchadnezzar's Nightmare. Let's begin in chapter number 2, verse 1. The Bible says, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep brake from him. Now we see here, um, we're going to see a forgotten dream. But before we get too far, there is a place right here where people who attack the Bible say that there is a discrepancy, there is a contradiction in the Bible found right here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice it says in verse 1 that it's in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar that these events occur. Daniel's involved in these events. But we read in Daniel chapter number 1 that Daniel waited three years before he was ever presented to Nebuchadnezzar. So how can Daniel wait three years before he ever sees Nebuchadnezzar, yet be talking to Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign? And the simple answer to that is, Nebuchadnezzar, for part of his reign, ruled alongside his father. And when it refers to the second year, it's referring to the second year of his soul reigning. Reigning alone as king. There's no discrepancy between the two. In fact, this shows that this is an authentic document 500 years before Christ, 600 years before Christ, because the people reading Daniel chapter number 2 at the time that Daniel wrote it would have understood the situation that Daniel's talking about. If somebody was forging it, they would have worked hard to make sure everything seemed to work together to the readers of their day. So this is, a, this is not a contradiction. But right here we see that Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream that troubles him. He couldn't even sleep because of the dream. And the Bible says in verse 2, Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show thee the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. So right here we see the forgotten dream. Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed a dream that has troubled him. He could not get back to sleep. It bothered him greatly. He wants to know what was the meaning of the dream. But he can't remember what it is. So he calls the greatest men of his day. He calls the magicians. He calls the astrologers. He calls the sorcerers. And then he calls the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the people that Nebuchadnezzar was a part of their race. Yet they considered their people so great that certain people said, I'm not a magician. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not an astrologer. Look, I am a Chaldean. So I have special knowledge about the future and about dreams. Yet we see, just like today, that each one of these groups of people were worthless for the interpretation of the dream. They said, we have to know what the dream is. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I don't remember it. One other interesting thing for your study in chapter number 2, if you notice in verse number 4, verse number 4, the Bible says again, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king, in Syriac. Y'all see that statement right there? In Syriac. Syriac is another word for the language that we know today as Aramaic. 
Aramaic is still spoken in the Middle East. In fact, for those of you who'd like to know, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. That's the language He spoke when He conversed one with another. He spoke Aramaic. He did not converse in Hebrew. Nobody conversed in Hebrew in Jesus' day. Hebrew was already a dead language in Jesus' day. And when we see in verse number 4 that they said they began to speak in Syriac, from chapter number 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter number 6, every passage in between those two verses are not written in Hebrew, they're written in Aramaic. And this is where the Aramaic section of the Bible is to be found. The king tells the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me, and then the king makes an impossible demand. He makes an impossible demand. Notice he says in verse 5, The thing is gone from me, he said. If ye will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time. In other words, you're just trying to bide for time. Because you see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, Till the time be changed, therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with, with flesh. So we see the impossible demand. The Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians, the sorcerers all said, this is beyond our ability. You see, no king, no ruler had ever asked us to tell them the interpretation of a dream without telling us the dream first. It's not the way it works, folks. And the king said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to bide for time. Look, it's not going to work for me. You see, I'm not going to forget about this. You're going to tell me the dream right now. And you're going to give me the interpretation. Because you think I'm just going to forget about this matter, we're going to make it an immediate thing. If you don't tell me the dream, then I know that you're not really a magician. You have no powers. You have no ability to see the future. Everything you've told me in the past has been a lie and I'm going to kill you for it. I'm going to take everything you have. I'm going to turn your houses into the local landfill, is what he's saying here. I'm going to destroy you. Some Bible scholars think that what's going on here, by the way, is Nebuchadnezzar is now a new king. The Chaldeans, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers were all probably older men from his father's reign. They had been in his father's court. They had been people who counseled their father. And Nebuchadnezzar, as a new king, doesn't want all these old people talking to him. He wants to bring in his own people. So he figures a way to get rid of these folks, these charlatans, 
is just to kill them this way. But there's a problem, you see, because along with a deadly decree, it's going to affect other people. And that's what we see next, a deadly decree. Verse number 12. For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Daniel had no part in this. He did not go to the king and say they couldn't interpret the dream. Daniel's not there in the court, yet his decree is now affecting Daniel. And now there's people looking for him to execute him. And we see here Daniel's two desires in verse number 13. I mean, verse number 14. The Bible says, Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now, Arioch would have been the chief or the high executioner of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going there to kill Daniel. Yet Daniel asked with wisdom a request. He says in verse number 15, Daniel answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time, that he would give him time, and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his his companions, that they would desire mercies of God of heaven, of the God of heaven, concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So we see here Daniel's two desires. The first desire of Daniel was a reasonable desire. Daniel goes to the king, and through Arioch he makes a request. He says, King, if you'll give me some time, I will tell you your dream, and I will give you the interpretation of it. But I need time. Now, is Daniel just trying to hope that Nebuchadnezzar will forget? No. His request is a sincere request. He says, I will have the interpretation and I will know the dream. So he makes a reasonable request to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar hears the request and he grants it, that desire of Daniel. Daniel's first desire was a reasonable desire made to the king of Babylon. His second desire was a merciful desire. And if you're looking at the screen right now, you'll see a picture someone drew of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego praying to God. Because you see, when the magicians, the sorcerers, the the astrologers, and the Chaldeans had said there is no flesh that can know this, the only one who can know it is a God. They were absolutely right. And Daniel knew that too. Daniel did not try to work it out on his own. As soon as he made the request to the king, Daniel falls on his knees with his friends and then makes a request to the Lord, to the God of heaven, as we see in verse number 18. Let's stop right there with that phrase, the God of heaven. For those of you who like to study your Bibles, understand this. This is the key name for God in the book of Daniel. In fact, if you mark your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline the phrase, the God of heaven, in your Bible. It's an important note. 
Because you see, in the ancient world, most people equated a certain God with a certain place. After all, has anybody ever heard of the city Athens, Greece? Athens, Greece was named for a certain goddess, the goddess Athena, who was associated with Athens. You go to Ephesus, where Paul would write the letter to the Ephesians, where John would refer to um, the Ephesians in his book of Revelation. The Ephesians, their city, their deity for their city was the goddess Artemis. Each god had a certain location. Many times when we look at the Gentiles, we have this idea that the Gentiles did not believe in the Lord. That is not the case. The Gentiles did believe in the Lord. They believed that the Lord had power in Israel. They believed in the Lord, and they also believed in their gods and in the other people's gods. Idolatry is not the exclusion of the worship of Jehovah. It is the pollution of the worship of Jehovah with other gods. Now we see the children of Israel have been carried captive. The Jews are now in Babylon. They are no longer in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem is the temple. Remember when Daniel would pray that he would pray and always when he prayed he would face towards Jerusalem. Why? Because in Jerusalem was the temple. And upon the mercy seat the Shekinah glory of God rested. The children of Israel knew at any time they wanted to know where God was they could always point to the temple because the glory of God rested on that place. And thus it is called the house of God. Now the children of Israel have been removed. They're now in Babylon. So we see a new conception of God. It's not new in the fact that they didn't know about it before. Daniel's not the first one ever to use the phrase the God of heaven. But he uses the God of heaven now because it doesn't matter whether or not you're in Jerusalem or in Babylon or in Egypt or even in Dalton, Georgia. Every one of us can look up and see the heavens. And we know that there is a God in heaven, that we worship the God of heaven, the God of earth. And we understand that God is not fixed to one location. Very important theology that is given right here in verse number 18. Daniel prays for the mercies of the God of heaven to reveal this dream to them. And God answers their prayer. We see a dream revealed, a revealed dream. Let's look again in verse number 24. The Bible says, after Daniel praises God for the answer, Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, He went and said thus to him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen in the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar 
what shall be in the latter days? Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And now we see what we're going to deal with for the rest of our time. It says, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. His image, the image's head, was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff to the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof for the king. So Daniel supernaturally revealeth the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And in this dream, it is important. What kept Nebuchadnezzar up at night? It's because this dream foretold the future. Now in studying the book of Daniel, you will see that Daniel has 12 chapters. And the form of the book goes like this. The first six chapters primarily deal with history, the story of Daniel's life, and the experiences of him and his companions and the ones he met. Chapters 7 through 12 deal with prophecy. In fact, if you want to know Bible prophecy, you have to know the book of Daniel. You cannot understand the book of Revelations without a thorough understanding of the book of Daniel. For what is told in Daniel is revealed in more depth in the book of Revelation. In fact, for those of you who like to study prophecy, I would recommend two Old Testament books. The book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah in order to understand New Testament prophecy. You have to know and understand those two books. Remember, John, the apostle, was a Jew. And when he spoke concerning things in the book of Revelation, he is referring back to what he has read in the Old Testament with revelation from God, from Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now we're going to see the future. And he now interprets the dream. The interpretation of the dream deals with this great image or great statue. We will begin in verse number 36. Thank you, Brother Larry. We will begin in verse number 36 to understand the interpretation. Daniel says, We will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, 
art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So the head of gold represents what? The kingdom or the empire of Babylon. The kingdom and the empire of Babylon. The empire of Babylon lasted from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. This is represented by a head of gold. Two things to understand about this head of gold. Number one, of the different metals of the image, gold is the most valuable. Wouldn't you agree? Gold is the most valuable. But also concerning it, gold is also the softest and the weakest of the metals. Many of y'all may not understand this because we don't get too much gold nowadays. But y'all remember an old pirate movie? Anybody ever watched an old pirate movie? Remember when a pirate would get a gold coin? What would the pirate do? He'd take it and he'd bite it. Now why would he bite the gold coin? Don't make no sense, does it? Well, gold is soft. It's very weak. And if they wanted to know if the gold was real, you bit it. And if you could leave teeth marks in the coin, it's real gold. And that's why they would bite it. So when we see Nebuchadnezzar here, we see as far as the metal goes, it's the most valuable. But it's also the, most, it's the weakest of all the metals. Then Daniel speaks concerning the second part of the statue. The Bible says, verse 39, And after thee shall rise another kingdom, inferior to thee. This refers to the breast and arms of silver. This refers to the second kingdom empire, Persia. Persia. Notice it says that his breasts, and here's an important thing, his arms. How many arms do you have on a body? Two. You see, the Persian empire was actually made up of two different nations and two different peoples. They were known as the Medes and the Persians. Now, Persia still exists today. Did you know that? Persia is still a nation today. The Persians are still a people today. Does anybody know who they are today? They are the Iranians. Iran is Persia. They changed their name at the end of the 19th century. Before that, they were known as Persia. They are not Arabs. You want to know why the Middle East, does, the Muslims and the Arabs in the Middle East don't like the Iranians? Because the Iranians are not Arabs. They are Persians. And they are two different people. They have existed from Nebuchadnezzar's day all the way to today. They will conquer Persia and they are known as the body parts of silver. Remember, silver in value is a step down. A step down from gold. Yet silver is stronger than gold. It's a step up in strength. We go to the next empire and we see that the belly and the thighs of brass are the empire of Greece. Founded under Alexander the Great in the year 331 B.C. The Greeks would conquer the Persian Empire. Alexander would conquer his empire and die 
before he turned 30 years, I mean, by the time he turned 30 years old. And he died as a result from a drunken party in the city of Babylon. That's where Alexander the Great would die. He would conquer the world, and then he would die. After he died, his generals, four of them, would divide their, the empire in between them, and they would constantly squabble amongst themselves. And this empire dragged on for about another 150 years. And then we come to the legs of iron. The legs of iron, and that represents the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Now, notice again, we are talking about legs of iron. How many legs does a person have? They have two. And if anybody understands the, um, the history of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire became so big that one ruler could not rule over all of it. And the empire was divided into two parts, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. This would become even such a great thing that even in those false religions of Catholicism and Greek Orthodox, they are divided according to the divisions of the Roman Empire. The Western Roman Empire developed Roman Catholicism. The Eastern Roman Empire developed Greek Orthodoxy. And those are the two churches, the polluted churches that came out of this empire. Again, Rome is a step down as iron, a step down in value from the Greeks being brass, yet a step up in strength. The Roman Empire would display great strength. And Before we get into the last one, I want you to understand these prophecies concerning these empires. The prophecy is given to Nebuchadnezzar. It's given in the language of Aramaic not the language of Israel in Hebrew. This is a prophecy given to the Gentiles. Yet, this prophecy is also predicated through the lens of the Jewish people. Because we're going to see one more empire. Yet, there's never just been five empires upon this earth. Before I name the last empire, I want to tell you some that didn't make the cut. Anybody ever heard of the British Empire? It used to be said at the end of the 19th century that the sun never set on the British Empire, the largest empire the world's ever seen. It's not on the list. Anybody ever heard of Genghis Khan and the Mongolian Empire? They conquered the largest land empire in history. Yet the Mongolian Empire is not mentioned here. Anybody ever heard of the Ottoman Empire? The Ottoman Empire came to an end at World War I. The great Turkish Empire. Yet, that empire does not exist today. And it's not on the list. I want you to understand that each one of these empires is seen through the lens of the Jews. And each one of these had an effect upon the people, the Jewish people in the land of the Jewish people. Now, during the time of Rome, were the children of Israel in the land? Yes, Jesus lived in Israel, wouldn't you agree? He preached in Israel. After Jesus died, around 70 AD, the Jews were defeated by, they revolted, they were defeated by the Roman army, they would revolt again in about the year 120, 
and would be defeated again by the Roman Empire. And at that point, the Roman Empire took the Jews and threw them out of Israel. And from about 120 A.D. up until 1948, there was not a country for the Jews. The Jews were wandering throughout all the people. So, that occurred with Rome. And thus the empire stopped. You don't hear about another empire that we've seen in history. The Mongolians are not mentioned. The, the British are not mentioned. And every other empire is not mentioned. Considering that, let me show you the final empire in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The final empire. The feet of clay and iron. The feet of clay and iron. Is what will be known in prophecy as the revived Roman Empire. The revived Roman Empire. And very interestingly, more is mentioned. More words are given to the feet of clay and iron than the legs, than the thighs, than the breast and arms, than the head combined. Daniel stops right here and dwells upon the feet of clay and iron. Let's look at that very quickly. Verse 41, if you'll move there. The Bible says, And whereas as thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, forasmuch as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. What does this mean? What does this mean for the revived Roman Empire? Well, understand this. Metal, these metals deal with monarchies. You all understand that? Nebuchadnezzar is called what? The head of gold. And who is Nebuchadnezzar? He's the king. The next medal is given to what? A kingdom. The next medal is given to another kingdom. The next medal is given to another kingdom. Understand this in prophecy here. These medals deal with monarchy. You can say M&M, metal and monarchy. Do you understand the two? But the final one is different. It is metal mixed with clay. Now what does the clay represent in this prophecy? Well, Daniel tells us. Look again. Look again. Verse number 43. It says, And whereas thou sowest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with what? The seed of men. We see monarchy mixed with clay. The authority, the rulership of an empire mixed with the power of the people. What is this referring to? Most Bible scholars, including men like A.C. Gabeline, H.A. Ironside, view this as a mixing of this empire 
with something we are familiar today as modern-day democracy. It's going to be under one person, yet he's going to derive his power not from his birthright, not from his conquest, but he's going to derive his power from the consent of the people he rules. That beast that rises out of the sea, he comes out of the people, and this empire will rise, will rise out of the people. They will consent to a man. And by the way, who will the king be of the revived Roman Empire? None other than what we know in the New Testament as the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Notice the division. We have two feet, and at the end of these two feet, what do we have? We have ten toes. These ten toes represent ten smaller kingdoms. And most of the people look at these as the ten provinces of the former Roman Empire. The seat of power will be found in Europe. In Europe. This prophecy is still in the future. How do we know that? Because I told you before that each one of these kingdoms is to be seen through the lens of the Jews. What are the Jews familiar with? When is God using the Jews? The Jews have now been returned to the land of Israel. There will be an event that's coming up probably very soon. And it's called the rapture. And in the rapture of the church, God will remove His chosen people upon this earth, His agents for this period of time, the church. They will be gone away. There will be no more Christians upon the earth once the rapture occurs. Nod your head if you understand that. God is taking the Christians out. He's taking the church out. With the church and Christians removed, who will be God's agents now upon the earth? The Jews. They will be the ones whom God will use. And thus, the statue is completed with a space of time. Completed because the people of Israel will once again be used by God. We're not done now with the prophecy. There's one more thing. Daniel tells us about a stone. A stone not cut out by hands that destroys the great image. Look at verse 45. Let's start in verse 44. The Bible says, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. What is the stone that destroys the great image? The stone is none other than Jesus Christ. Notice that the stone doesn't flow out of the statue. That's an important thing. We begin with the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And from the head of gold flows out the second kingdom. And from the arms and the, um, chest of silver flows out the third kingdom. 
And from the belly and thighs of brass flow out the fourth kingdom. And from the legs of iron flow out the feet of clay and iron. They each come from each other. Yet this kingdom that's going to come doesn't come from succession. It doesn't come from dynasties. It doesn't come from the Gentiles. It comes from God Himself. And God will destroy it. The stone is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about the stone. Jesus Christ is the supernatural stone. Notice the Bible says that this stone was made without hands. Jesus Christ, when He came to this earth, was born of a virgin. It was a supernatural birth. The Bible said, This thing which shall be conceived of you shall be of the Holy Ghost and not of man. He is the stumbling stone. The people who are against Him will find Him a rock of offense and a stone to stumble over. He is the smitten stone. Moses was told by God to strike the stone. And who was that stone? The Bible tells us by, through the Apostle Paul that that stone was none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was smitten and suffered and died for our sins. He is the salvation stone. It is upon this rock I will build my church. And when Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that stone destroys your old sinful life and pounds it into dust. And He raises up a new creation. And He is the sovereign stone. Just as the Bible said here that this stone would go and fill the whole earth, I'm telling you as God, Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all the earth. He is the sovereign stone. Yes, that stone is none other than Jesus Christ. Now we see at the very end the recognized deity. The recognized deity. Look at verse 46. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. So right here we see Nebuchadnezzar recognizes who the one true God is. Notice what he calls him. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar calls God the God of gods. Hey, there's no God greater than God Himself. Why? Because there are no other gods but God alone. And He is also a Lord of kings. Whether they recognize it or not, God is sovereign over all. And He is a revealer of secrets. The seeing thou couldst reveal this secret... Then we see finally in closing the promoted Daniel. The promoted Daniel. The Bible says in verse 48, Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Shadrach requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now that statement right there that Daniel sat in the gate of the king means this. Daniel, at the young age, probably of 20 or 21, has now become the prime minister of the Babylonian empire. 
He is the number two man. The only one above him is now Nebuchadnezzar. God has raised Daniel up. Why? Because Daniel trusted in the Lord and put his faith in God alone in chapter number 1. And he also depended upon God in chapter number 2. He realized that in order to do these great things, he couldn't do it by himself. So he asked his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to come with him and pray and ask God for help. And God, being the merciful and gracious God He is, answered their request. What can we learn from this? Number one, we see the future being outlined in Daniel chapter number two. But more importantly than that, I want to encourage you to realize, just as the interpretation and the revelation of the dream was beyond what man could do on their own, to be an effective Christian and to walk faithfully with the Lord will require more than what you have inside you right now. We must trust in Jesus Christ and depend upon Him for strength, supernatural strength, to do great things for God. Amen. Brother Wayne.